I remember 1998 as a time of great optimism. As we put our faith in this future-orientated document to lead us forward, we ignored that it did not provide us with any blueprint to deal with the past. Because we assumed that difficult issues connected to the conflict would somehow resolve. But that did not happen. You're listening to To Preserve and Protect Contemporary Issues in Irish Cultural Heritage A podcast series from the Royal Irish Academy funded by the Heritage Council To listen back to other episodes in the series check out our page on the Royal Irish Academy's website at ria.ie Dr Laura McAtackney is an Associate Professor in the Department of Archaeology and Heritage Studies at Aarhus University, Denmark. Her podcast is entitled Northern Ireland, Heritage and Memory, dealing with the troubling remnants of conflict in a volatile state. For the past 15 years, the troubling remnants of the recent conflict in Northern Ireland, which we colloquially know as the Troubles, have been one of my central research areas. In particular, I have followed the French theorist Laurent Olivier, who prompts us to look to the latent power of what he calls material memory. He has argued that while materials remain, even if they're forgotten or half-hidden, they retain the potential to reveal past realities at some unknown point in the future. Such ideas are especially poignant when exploring material remains associated with the Troubles and the often unarticulated roles they continue to play in contemporary Northern Ireland. As many of us remember, the conflict in Northern Ireland was considered consigned to the past with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. I was 21 at the time and an undergraduate at Trinity College Dublin, but I always kept an eye up north to where I came from in Belfast. I remember 1998 as a time of great optimism, as we put our faith in this future-orientated document to lead us forward. We ignored that it did not provide us with any blueprint to deal with the past, because we assumed that difficult issues connected to the conflict would somehow resolve. But that did not happen. Government policy remained focused on cyclical political crises and economic regeneration. Heritage organisations remained apprehensive of tackling chronologies of the conflict. Disputes continued regarding how we defined victim and or perpetrator. And against this backdrop, increasingly divergent and partial histories became constructed within the two communities. Being a contemporary archaeologist, post-conflict Northern Ireland has in many ways provided rich pickings for thinking through how troubling remnants not only presence the past, but potentially shape the future in both straightforward and in unforeseen ways. One of the key issues that emerged at the start of the peace process was the meaning and treatment of physical remnants of the conflict that persisted in varying degrees across the province. From ephemera to monumental structures, Remnants of the Troubles continued to manifest the presence and threat of violence as they uncomfortably coexisted with the peace process and its narratives of transition, reconciliation and normalisation. Substantial border crossings, vast army bases and heavily fortified police stations were strategically placed throughout Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Liam Clark reflected on the nostalgia some local people felt about the swift removal of many of these castles of the north, as he called them, at the time. The elevated presence and enduring repercussions of mass imprisonment ensured its most prominent container, Long Kashmir's prison, 
became the flashpoint for conflicting ideas about what we do with these so-called icons of the Troubles. At a more insidious level, the intensification and materialisation of segregation of working-class communities was not just evident in the sprawl of so-called peace walls that cut across Belfast, it was also implicit in urban planning. Major road schemes, such as the Westlink in Belfast, simultaneously created motorways while dividing the so-called two communities. Changes in public housing projects saw traditional rows of back-to-back terraced housing being increasingly replaced by American-style defensive cul-de-sacs. Blakely and Snyder have described the latter in the US context as a means of social control and differentiation. I will now briefly discuss two examples from this long list of materialisations of conflict, the incomplete heritage of Long Kashmir's prison and enduring nature of peace walls. They will reveal the, at times, unexpected roles those forms have taken in presencing the past and shaping Northern Irish memory and identity during the peace process. Long Kashmir's prison needs no introduction as a seminal place from the Northern Irish Troubles. It was associated with some of the most public and controversial events of the conflict, including mass internment, the burning of the camp by Republican prisoners, the escalation of protests climaxing with the 1980 and 1981 hunger strikes, the prison break of 1983, and the prominent role prison leaders played in negotiating ceasefires leading to the Good Friday Agreement. It is a site that we feel we all know due to the media profile of its H-blocks, but few people have had physical access to the site without being assigned the status of prisoner, visitor or employee. Long Kashmir's was categorised as a high-security site when it opened to hold internees in 1971, and even after its closure as a functional prison in 2000 and creeping demolition ever since, it remains largely inaccessible to the wider public. Despite this lack of access to the site, Long Kashmir's has been an integral part of Northern Irish society. Alongside the social and political repercussions of mass imprisonments, depictions of the prison, its interiors and many of its inmates have acted as visual backdrops for working-class communities in the form of monumental wall murals and memorials. What I have called the distributed self at the prison, in the form of prisoner handicrafts, known as prison art, and other forms of its remains and infrastructure, have been relocated in significant quantities and continue to circulate in wider society. These artefacts continue to presence Long Kesmias in people's homes and community-run museums. As an archaeologist, it was the site itself that greatly interested me initially. This interest was focused on how the prison landscape, buildings and material world may or may not have impacted on the ability of the prisoners to effectively resist imprisonment. However, it quickly became apparent that any study of the prison had to engage with the fact that its material remains were still active agents both on the site and in wider society. They were still meaningful and effective to people who felt a connection to the site, and this meant they acted as a material critique of official attempts to bypass dealing with the past at a societal level. Today, Long Kashmir's has been radically changed. The majority of the site has been demolished with only a representative sample of buildings remaining. However, it continues to hold a seminal place in contemporary Northern Ireland due to its entangled history, extensive legacies and potential to fulfil a role in the long post-conflict transition. At the most basic level, it is important now because it was important then. At a more nuanced level, it is significant because it retains the ability to facilitate a different form of remembering. 
Despite the mass demolitions at the site, the in-situ material remains are associated with a diverse group of actors and they have the potential to illustrate, illuminate and connect to many different aspects and narratives of the conflict. A report by the Northern Ireland Strategic Investment Board in 2012 asserted that there are about 33 different narrative strands identified at Long Kashmir's. Without exploring the specificity of this number, the site evidently contains a wide range of potential narratives for a large number of individuals and groups. This means while it survives in some form, it holds the potential to facilitate remembering in ways that are meaningful and challenging to a substantial number of people. Long Kashmir truly encompasses the complexities of the conflict as it was by necessity assured site. Material culture associated with Republican, Loyalist and criminal prisoners, security forces and prison officers, as well as auxiliary employees, contractors and their social networks are associated with it. Despite the intentions of its enduring closure and partial demolition, Long Kashmir continues to exist. It has not been forgotten, it has not been contained and its meaning has continued to evolve. Peace walls are linear structures that take a variety of forms, including monumental walls, lengths of opaque or transparent fencing, roadscapes and or facilitated liminal areas. They were first erected in the late 1960s between the Falls and Shankill roads in order to prevent violent interactions between antagonistic near neighbours. At the time, little consideration was given as to how materialising segregation when relationships between communities were at a low point could be reversed. Indeed, there was little to no policy for taking down peace walls until relatively recently. We often associate peace walls with their most monumental and decorated form, what Google has categorised as the historical landmark, Peace Wall Belfast, between the Falls and Shankill on its maps. However, peace walls are more often found in liminal areas, down alleyways and less tourist-friendly locations. They have remained important due to their effectiveness in curtailing violent conflict and their ability to slip into the background, but this does not mean they are a neutral presence. The Community Relations Council has shown that they are the only infrastructure associated with the troubles that actually increased in length, form and scale during the peace process. Navigating these intergenerational structures is complicated. First, they are infrequently in one piece or form, Many peace walls are hybrids that have been added to over time, extending into space both vertically and horizontally. Second, most have doorways or openings, official or unofficial, at various points that allow movement across them. However, they do not affect everyone who experiences them equally. One has to come from the communities who live alongside peace walls to know what the rules are to abide by or defy. This ambiguity means that although walls may have gateways, people who live alongside them do not often cross them. Due to their longevity, generations have grown up with their presence and with what Bryony Reed has called a psychology of spatial confinement. Third, while peace walls were intended to prevent violence, for the majority of the time they act to prohibit more normative interactions that one would expect between neighbours. This in turn has inhibited the development of knowledge, understanding and empathy between the two communities, particularly as they have tried to make sense of their experiences of conflict as the society has striven for reconciliation and reproachment post-Good Friday Agreement. At an experiential level, peace walls literally visually block the experiences of similarly disadvantaged and conflict-torn communities from each other. 
they ensure that there is a disconnect between those who were most adversely affected by the Troubles, albeit on opposite sides of the wall. This means that effectively peace walls have acted to maintain and even strengthen segregation into a post-conflict context. Lastly, a major repercussion of living long-term beside peace walls is the physical and psychological homogeneity it engenders within those communities. Materially ghettoized communities ensure that self-created and one-sided projections of their experiences of the conflict, which are most frequently found in wall murals and community memorials, remain uncritiqued as they materialise on or alongside these walls. The unofficial community memorials that have appeared within these communities in the post-conflict context tend to have very localised and partial views of the past that alongside the othering of the community hidden from view allows misrepresentations to be propagated within. In many parts of Belfast, what they are showing is a proliferation of a sectional memory culture that is largely disengaged from what Laura Jane Smith has called the authorised heritage discourse of official heritage organisations. In many parts of Belfast, memorial landscapes of spatially significant but one-sided views of the conflict are being perpetuated and reproduced in ways that are meaningful to those who live around them but with little understanding of the more interconnected and complicated histories of the past. In conclusion, acknowledging that materials retain meaning in the post-conflict context is important. It means that we are conscious that their existence means something, that meaning can be positive, negative or neutral, and that it can and will change. Once we accept material memory as meaningful, we can think about how we utilise it to remember different narratives of what happened in the past and how they can allow people to develop understandings of the complexities of conflict. However, it is important to think about what the troubling remnants of the troubles can inspire. Material culture can be a touchstone of the past and can inspire memories of particular places, times and people, but it is what we do with this moving forward that is most important. When we have accepted that as a society we can no longer ignore the past, then material culture has a potentially important role to play in moving beyond the skewed perspectives of the men highlighted in community memorials and the proclamation of official documents and government archives. This is why Long Kashmir's peace walls, community memorials and other remnants of the conflict continue to be important even when we ignore them or we are told they are not. In a post-conflict society, the remnants of conflict retain the potential to provide insights into the past simply because they are evidence that it happened. They can provide different perspectives into what we have conveniently forgotten and they have a degree of material integrity. Particularly at a time of heightened anxiety and tension, as we are currently experiencing in the run-up to an as-yet undecided Brexit, how we deal with the past is not something we can ignore. Thanks for listening to To Preserve and Protect Contemporary Issues in Irish Cultural Heritage A podcast series from the Royal Irish Academy Funded by the Heritage Council This podcast series was produced by Real Smart Media To listen back to other episodes in the series Check out our page on the Royal Irish Academy's website At ria.ie